let's have the kids be dismissed at their time of worship upstairs. And thank you all for joining us this morning. Thank you, uh, Janice, for leading us in prayer and worship team for uh, leading us in song. Uh, Go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 6. As we prepare to jump into the Word this morning, I'll make uh, just a few announcements regarding the life of the church and kind of what's going on. Uh, This is our second Sunday of uh, our elder balloting process, which means that those ballots are due back tomorrow at noon to the church office. And so if you have not gotten your envelope, if you are a member of the church, there's one envelope per member on that table back there, and then there should be one form per member in the envelope. We need those to the church office by noon tomorrow, and then uh, probably about two weeks from today, we'll be able to announce to you um, who is joining our elder team to serve in three-year terms. If you're not familiar with the process, our elders serve three-year terms, and so every year we're, we're bringing more people onto the team uh, for a term as some uh, finish up their term. Uh, so please make note of that. That's important in the life and ministry of the church. I'll also tell you two weeks from today, we'll have a baby dedication in the service, and we've got uh, four or five families that will definitely take part in that. And so if uh, you want to dedicate one of your children um, to the Lord, if that's something you haven't done before, if that's something you don't understand, what is that even all about, then let me know. I'll send you some information about why we at Fellowship think this is so important to do. And, uh, and if you're watching online, if you're one of those young families that haven't come back in person yet, we would love for that to be a time for you to come and join us in person as a, a marking point of dedicating your child to the Lord and, and, de- and committing yourselves as parents to raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, we are only a few weeks away from Easter. And, uh, and as we reflect back, y'all, I'm, a, I'm kind of a nostalgic person and uh, some people don't know that about me, but um, thinking back over the last year to where we were a year ago with the, the five of us that were in this room that were on a Thursday night uh, filming services to send out to, to you guys to watch at home on Sunday morning and thinking of Easter of last year, which I filmed at like 9.30 at night in my kitchen because I had to find a quiet time in my house when the kids were asleep to film myself preaching an Easter Sunday sermon. Um, God is good. And uh, to be back where we are here, to have such a a fun and fruitful 9.15 service. And then to have people in here gathered at, at 10.30 on the day that the time changed, people still showed up at 9.15, which was awesome. And to, to be worshiping together, opening the word together, God is good. He has been faithful. And, and I say this to look back and say, we want you here on Easter Sunday. And, and not only do we want you here on Easter Sunday, um, we are doing Good Friday in person this year on, on Friday, that Friday night. And so as we look over the next couple of weeks, Palm Sunday is two weeks from today. Good Friday is two and a half-ish weeks and Easter is three weeks from today. Uh, we want you to be here in person. We want you to start coming back. We'll continue offering two services for the time being, probably through the end of the spring. We'll, we'll keep doing two services and we'll want to accommodate people, but, but we want you here. We want you worshiping and how good will it be to be gathered together 
on, on Easter Sunday um, celebrating our, worship, our, our risen Savior. So don't not come next week because you're thinking about Easter. No, come next week, come Palm Sunday, and, and come on Easter Sunday too as we just celebrate God's goodness, God's faithfulness um, to his people. As we step into Luke chapter 6, we're going to talk about love, justice, and obedience. And I told you last week, Luke 6 is very similar to Matthew 5 through 7. Obviously, Matthew 5 through 7 is three chapters. It's longer. There's two key differences in the setting of these two uh, sermons. In, in Luke chapter 6, it starts out, Luke says, Jesus went to a level place. And in Matthew 5, it's Jesus goes up to a mount to talk to the people. And so that's where we get the words, um, here we are, Matthew 5 through 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. That's a super creative title, right? And here we are in Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain. But there's so much similarity and overlap. These are, this is not two stories of the same event and the same sermon. This is Jesus saying, this content is important and therefore he preached it multiple times. So he preached a shorter version that Luke tells us about in Luke 6, and he preached a longer version that Matthew relates to us in Matthew 5 through 7. So remember, whenever we step into Matthew 5 through 7 or Luke 6 as we are today, remember, when Jesus says something multiple times, sit up and listen, okay? So you don't have to listen to Tim today, but you do have to listen to Jesus because this is his sermon that we'll unpack together. So we'll be in Luke 6, uh, 27 through 49, and what we're going to see is three steps that kingdom love takes. That's the first section here. Three steps that kingdom love takes. And then we're going to see four truths that kingdom justice remembers. And then we'll end today, quite simply, one word that kingdom obedience says. So verse 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that those would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies. Do good, lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So first we have three steps that kingdom love takes. Number one, kingdom love loves your enemies. Two, kingdom love does good to others, and three, kingdom love exceeds natural love. Really simple approach to these verses here. Uh, Jesus says in verses 27 through 31, he, he gives five commands. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Offer the other cheek to those who strike you. Give to those who beg from you. So, so this is a radical statement of what it means to love within the kingdom of Jesus. Loving like Jesus is very, very different from loving like the world. 
You know, it's easy to love those that love you back. It's easy to love those that are kind. It is not easy. It is radical kingdom life to love those who are actively against you. And that's exactly what Jesus is instructing us towards. Do good to those who hate you. Not, not just do good to those that you don't know. Not just uh, do, do good to, to those that you might not like that much. Do good to those who actively hate you, who are actively opposed to you, who are against you. Bless those who curse you. Somebody says something ill of you. Somebody says something wrong towards you. Somebody curses you. What do you do? You respond in blessing. Oh, but, but what about somebody who abuses you? How do you respond? You respond in prayer. Now, this is where I want us to be careful because we recognize that, that Jesus' words form a collective ethic of the kingdom. And, and so when we read Jesus' words, we, we see Jesus making radical statements. It's kind of his thing. Jesus makes radical statements. He wants people to think. He wanted people in the first century to think. He wants you to think. But Jesus makes radical statements that we have to compare and, and come together to see what is it that he is actually asking of us and, and instructing us towards in obedience towards him. Because I, wanted, I want to bring to you another passage too. Um, elsewhere in Luke, Jesus sends out his followers. And when he sends out his followers, he sends them out two by two. And you're probably somewhat familiar with this passage. And he gives them the instruction to go into homes and to, and to spread the message of the kingdom. But as you spread the message of the kingdom, he says, when you go into a community, he uses the, the language, seek a person of peace in that community. Okay? And if you do not find a person of peace in the community, if nobody receives you, either in a home or in a community, then he uses this, this language, this, this cultural uh, statement of the day where he says, shake off the dust from your robes and, and move on. And so how do you take that passage and, and this passage together? Because what Jesus is telling his followers is <clears throat> when you are not well received, sometimes it's time to just walk away and move on to the next kingdom assignment. Sometimes it's time to walk away from that house and go to the, if this house doesn't receive the message of the kingdom, don't sit there and, and keep yelling at them and keep trying to, to convince them as you're getting abused. The, the, the ethic that Jesus is calling us towards is don't sit there and proclaim the message of the kingdom of God to the same house time after time after time as you're getting cursed, as you're getting abused, as you're getting struck on the cheek. Just keep going, keep going, keep going and don't give up. That's not the ethic he's giving us here. That's not the moral command he's giving us here because he is elsewhere saying, uh, sometimes it's good to just leave that house and move on to the next house. Now, I mentioned that within this third command in this section, pray for those who abuse you, because this is one where we do have to be careful, because we do not send the abused back in to get abused over and over and over. That's not the radical kingdom ethic, okay? It, 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 there is this, this, this sense in which we do offer the other cheek to somebody who strikes us on the cheek, but it, within the kingdom of Christ, there is a time to walk away, shake off the dust from your robes and move on and entrust that person to God for somebody else to make the difference. But as you walk out, as you trust that person to God and say, say I cannot make the change in that person, I've got to move on, what do you do? You still pray. 
So, so that's the kingdom in, instruction here. It's not you as a follower of Christ much, must keep going back to the abuser over and over and over and take more punishment for the sake of Christ. No, no, no. There is a time to separate for personal protection from an abuser, and, but when you separate, you still pray. That's the radical kingdom ethic. You, you still do your best to love even if it's loving from afar, even, even, if, it's, even if it's loving with, with great care and concern while also seeking to protect yourself. So this is where we, we take the words of Jesus and the words of the New Testament as, as a whole to, to recognize Jesus is trying to make a radical point here, but, but we can't take any one passage of scripture and say, okay, well, we've just got to keep sending that person in abuse after abuse, just turn the other cheek. And I know you only got two cheeks, but maybe go back in a third time, maybe go back in a fourth time, maybe go back in a fifth time. No, no, no. We have to as radical kingdom citizens, recognize how we love our enemies well while loving our brothers and sisters well too. Because here's the, the, the radical kingdom ethic within community here, okay? Let's say there is that abuser that is, that is abusing time after time after time. And let's say we then as, as brothers and sisters recognize we need to pull this person out of this situation. This person is no longer the one that needs to be there going back for abuse after abuse. But, but the, when you are a family, when you are a family of Christ, you can recognize that we work together in the restoration of an individual. We, we work together in loving another. So no, we, here, here's, here's the radical part. We never, ever give up on anyone. Within the kingdom of Christ, we do not give up on the radical work of the Spirit of God to transform anyone and everyone. But we also recognize that, that it takes multiple people that God uses all sorts of people in an interaction with the life. So I think what, what Jesus is trying to, to get us to see here is when somebody abuses you, when somebody curses you, when somebody hates you, you don't get to write that person off and give up. But it doesn't mean that you have to be the one to go back and to do the ministry and to proclaim the truth and to get, and to get abused a time after time after time. Do you see what I'm saying here? That, that when you're walking with brothers and sisters, you recognize that the kingdom of God isn't, isn't dependent upon me. I don't, I don't have to be the only one to proclaim that witness to that person. And so I've made my attempts with that person and now I'm gonna give them over to the spirit of God and I'm gonna ask God to bring somebody else because I didn't get through that line. And so the, the truth of this is that loving our enemies is active. It is active. It's not indifference towards our enemies. It is active love to give, to pray, to bless. And it is so countercultural. It is 100% not what the world does. And the reality of it is what Jesus is telling us here is you don't get some level of reward for loving nice people. You don't get some commendation for loving the people that already love you. That's easy, y'all. The, the world does that and does that well. It's easy to love loving people. The radical nature of the kingdom of Christ is that you're called to love hard people 
who hate you, who are against you, who speak ill of you. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Not indifference and certainly not hatred. Uh, Point number two on this, verse 31 says, as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. You know, we can soften this and sometimes we do. Sometimes people soften this to make it a negative command to say, don't do to anyone else what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Now that's an easier command to follow, isn't it? Because if I tell my kids, when you go to school, don't be rude, don't be mean, don't do to somebody something that you wouldn't want somebody to do to them. You can be passive and indifferent and completely ignore a person and fulfill that command. And that's not what Christ is calling us to. He's not calling us to avoid the negative. He's calling us to actively engage, do good to others that you would want done to you. So indifference isn't an option here. Now, the the thing about need is with the billions of people that live in this world and, and the opportunities we have in our generation with media, mass media, television, internet, uh, social media, we have all sorts of information thrown at us constantly. We can know exactly what is going on in another country of intensive suffering at, at any point. And yet if we really were to just zone in on Whitfield County, many of us would be astonished by the level of day-to-day suffering just in Whitfield County. Uh, just the suffering in Whitfield County is overwhelming enough that it would be completely overwhelming to us to, to really engage with each, every, each and every individual that is hurting, that is suffering within our county. And so here's what happens. We experience empathy fatigue over time, where we see there's somebody suffering within our own community, and we feel like, well, maybe I can help that person. But then you realize, well, their needs are more than I thought. And then you realize that there's 10 other families that are just as bad off as that one. And then you, you, you zoom out to Georgia and you recognize, man, there's hundreds of families in Georgia that are just in just as bad of a situation. And there are millions of families in the United States of America. And there are millions of families around the world that are suffering intensely. Kids that can't eat, people that are sick, people that don't know the gospel, people that, that don't have clean water. And then you hear need after need after need and you get overwhelmed. You say, there's nothing. I can do. And and the truth is, no one of us can address all the needs in all the world. We, We know that. But the trick that the enemy plays on us is he allows us to be overwhelmed by the greatness of the global need that that we think we can't address a simple practical need right in front of us, which y'all, that's where it starts. That is where life change starts at the local level, at the individual level, with one family at a time, serving one family at a time. And so we need not look at the, at the needs of the whole world and become so overwhelmed that we, we can't even bring ourselves to show love, compassion, and empathy towards them. Yes, we need to be concerned about what's going on in the world, but don't be overwhelmed. Focus instead on what can I do to serve one? What can I do for one family within my community? One family whose kid goes to my kid's school. One family who lives in my neighborhood. One family who was in my workplace. One family who I meet along the street. One family overseas who I come into a relationship with. You know, this is the genius of of the Compassion International approach 
to say, we're not just gonna ask you to give an indefinite sum of money to an indefinite number of kids. We're gonna ask you to serve one child with a definite amount every month. It's genius because they knew what, how our minds worked. And so how do we do that on a local level? One family with the school next door, one family in your kid's school, things like that. We need not be so overwhelmed by doing good to others that we do nothing out of paralysis. We've got to do something. We've got to move in love and service towards others. So kingdom love loves our enemies. It does active good to others, not passive. And it exceeds natural love. There is a type of love that comes natural to all people. And here's the truth we have to remember. All people are actually created in the image of God. And some of us are restored image bearers by being in Christ and therefore have the ability to more rightly reflect the image of God. But, but every fallen sinner, every human being is created in the image of God. And there are still aspects of that that are represented within those that are sinners. And, and one of those is the, this concept of love. Non-Christians can love people. Y'all know that, right? Non-Christians have the ability to act in love, but there is something uniquely different about the way Christians can love because Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friends. But here, Jesus says, if you're gonna love, you need to love your enemies. That's what Jesus ultimately did. He laid down his life for his enemies so that we could, out of the overflow of the love that he has shown us, love our enemies. It, it's easy to love those who love you. That comes natural. Natural love loves friends, hates enemies, and does good to those who do good to you. And that's not what the Christian is called to. The Christian is called to supernatural love that not just loves friends, but loves enemies. That not just does good to those who do good to you, but does good to those that you don't even know or those that are your enemies. Supernatural love shows the Father's mercy and supernatural love will be rewarded in the end. And so much of this passage feels like God, Jesus just telling Christians, just go on, keep going in and get beat up. Just get beat up by the world. But the reality of what Jesus has suffered on our behalf, that, that is the motivating factor for this. Because Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus says, they will hate you because they hated me. But Jesus suffered much more intensely than any of us are ever going to be asked to suffer. And he did it for us. And because he rose again from the dead, he can guarantee for us that if we serve out of love for Christ, because our motivation is, the, is that our sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ. If we serve in such a way, then the guarantee is eternal reward. That's going to completely overshadow all of the difficulties of this life. Jesus promises your life will be hard. Jesus promises it will be hard to follow me. And then Jesus also says my, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Why does he mean that? Because at the end of the day, while looking through worldly eyes, the Christian life is hard because it's hard to love your enemies. It's hard to pour yourself out for others. It's hard to be ready to serve at any time. It's exhausting. It will drain you. And yet at the same time, Jesus says, I'm going to keep filling you. And in my presence, there is fullness of joy. 
and, and, and in the hope you have for me, the hope anchors you for whatever the storms of life throw at you. So go ahead and keep pouring yourself out. Go ahead and keep loving well. And I'm going to be there to restore the energy by the power of my spirit. And Jesus' promise is still true. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And the promise of eternity with Christ, eternal reward, stands true no matter the hardships of this world. So yeah, you're called to love and you're called to love radically. And here's what we don't understand often as Christians. We're also called to judge. Verse 37 and following. Judge not and you will not be judged. See, it sounds like I'm lying to you now, right? I said we're called to judge and now Jesus just said judge not. Let's read it in context. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. And then he tells them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So here's the deal. Uh, There's this tendency within certain churches to take this verse so far, meaning verse 37, as to say, well, we can't judge anyway. We just need to leave it to God. We don't don't need to confront sin. We, We don't need to judge anybody. Judge not lest you be judged. So we'll just let God deal with them. That is destructive. I call that the, the personal freedom approach or, or the, the approach of saying, well, you know, they have freedom to, to sin, they have freedom to obey, they have freedom to do whatever, and we don't need to do anything because ultimately God's going to take care of it in the end. I, I believe that's disobedient. Now, so that's one approach. The, the other corresponding error is the, the pharisaical control approach. If the personal freedom approach is to say, well, just let people do whatever, God will take care of them in the end. The pharisaical control approach is we have to call out everything. We have to make sure everybody does things exactly the same way based on my understanding of the law of God, based on my expectations for what righteous behavior looks like because that's the Pharisee approach. The Pharisee approach wasn't just to follow what Moses said, but actually to add to what Moses said. To, to actually expand the law. And the Pharisees' actions were motivated by the fact that Jesus said they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. They would rather look righteous in man's eyes than actually be righteous in God's eyes. That's the Pharisaical approach. And so often, even in not, we're not talking about the world here, we're talking about church culture here. 
We, we, we go off the rails in one of these two approaches. Either we go the personal freedom approach, let everybody exercise their personal freedoms and we'll let God deal with them in the end, or the pharisaical control approach. No, we have to call out every little misstep and we have to control people's behavior to meet our expectations of righteousness. It's really easy to get this approach wrong. We, we have to recognize God is calling us to judge in this passage. And we know that by the two illustrations. Because the two illustrations is Jesus saying, when he's talking about the blind leading the blind, is he saying we just need to let the blind guy to himself and let him figure it out on his own? No. But he's saying if you're going to help a blind guy, recognize your own blind spots. That's the point of that illustration. And the same with the log and the speck illustration. Is he saying, just let your brother hang out with a speck in his eye? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you should help your brother with a speck in his eye, but don't help your brother with a speck in his eye when you got a log in yours. And so the goal of this passage is to be righteously, lovingly judging the sins of our brothers and sisters for the purpose of moving towards restoration. That's what Jesus is after here. Not ignore the misdeeds of others and just show grace and forgiveness. It's, it's like what I thought about this week is trains because trains are like the ambient soundtrack of life in Dalton. And so they're always in the background and sometimes you don't hear them, but they're always there. And so if you're, if you're going from a place, and I'm talking about a Christian in this illustration here. So if, if we recognize that, that all Christians sin sometimes, we recognize that, right? All, all Christians are still dealing Still, still, still dealing with the fact that we are sinners and sometimes we step out. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we get it wrong. We have that assumption. What we need to move is to a place of restoration here. Restoration in relationship with Christ. Restoration in relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, so if you're going to go from the point of sin to restoration, what is the path that you take? And what I see Jesus describing here is what needs to happen is the first stop needs to be this point of awareness of sin and repentance for sin. And I think the second stop along the way needs to be this place of atonement, of sin being paid for and forgiveness actually taking place. But, but see, here's what happens is sometimes the worldly approach that, that, that the church can adopt too um, likes to skip stops. And so we go from, from the place of, of sin and, and one thing we can do is we can say, well, judge not lest you be judged. We just need to forgive. And so we move past the place of awareness of sin. We move past the place where we as brothers and sisters address sin and we skip that stop and we come over here to the forgiveness spot. But, but we, can't, we can't skip the spot where somebody is aware of their sin and, and repentant. That, 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 that's a necessary phase. But, but see, this is the thing that the world has fallen in love with now. Not, not just that. that. That's a worldly approach that happens some, where let's just move to forgiving everybody and loving everybody without really addressing the sin. Um, the new approach that the world takes is somebody sins. Somebody messes up. And so you confront it hardcore on social media, on, on media platforms, whatever. You confront it hardcore. And then there's no path towards forgiveness without Jesus. There's no, there's no atonement. And so then you just cancel that person. That, that's, that's where we are in the sins of the world. Somebody steps out of line in what the world's expectation is of righteousness and good and morality. Then you confront that but because within the world's mind, there's no path towards forgiveness from the shed blood of Jesus, that's what cancel culture is. 
where we just say, ah, we're done with that person. We, we, we remove that person from a position of influence. And we as Christians have to have the better way. We have to recognize that yes, sin needs to be addressed. Sin needs to be confronted so that a person is made aware of their sin. But then once that person is aware of their sin, we can't just kick them out. We have to move them towards restoration. We have to move them towards a place of recognizing the forgiveness they have at the shed blood of Jesus and the new life available in Christ. And that's where restoration comes. And so it's really easy to skip a step along the path. But kingdom judgment recognizes four truths in this passage, four truths about kingdom justice. Number one, kingdom justice remembers that God is the highest judge. And number two, that all will be judged. This is humbling, sobering, and it should give every one of us pause. Are you responsible for the judgment and condemnation of anyone else? No. Are you responsible to use the Spirit of God in you to help somebody recognize their own sin? Yes, absolutely. But we recognize God is the highest judge. And so we have to be careful with this term judgment because it it says different things in different people's minds, right? Judging is really just discerning right from wrong. But we are not the judge that actually uh, pronounces the sentence upon a person. We have the ability and the opportunity to discern when somebody is either acting righteously or not righteously. We do not stand in the judgment seat to condemn that person. Not your job. God is the highest judge and he's going to sit on the judgment seat in front of everybody one day and that includes us. And the beauty is that in Christ, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we are going to, God is going to look at us and he is going to see Christ's righteousness poured out on our behalf. That is if you have accepted the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus has purchased you, brought you into the family, and his righteousness has replaced your sin. He took your sin on himself, and he put his righteousness on you. That's what the cross did if you've repented and believed. And so we remember God is the highest judge, and also that every single one of us will sit before that judgment seat. But you know, we also remember Every single one of us is sinful. And and this brings great humility. What this passage is saying here is that Christians don't trust our own judgment. We trust the word of God. And we trust the presence of the spirit. We trust God himself. Uh, We should be, what if, what if we as Christians actually walked under the assumption that there's a log in my eye pretty much all the time. What if we walked under the assumption that I have blind spots pretty much all the time? And what kind of radical humility would that instill within the church of Jesus to say, I know I don't always get it right. I know I'm blinded. I know there's something going on in my own heart over here. And therefore, I need to walk really gently, carefully. When Galatians 6 says, when a brother or sister is in sin, you restore that person with gentleness. We walk in gentleness. We walk in humility because we might have a log in our own eye that's bigger than the sin in their, own, in their eye. And see, so here's the deal. Here's the, the challenge because some sins are outward and noticeable and some sins are, are inward 
But, but those, inward dis, those inward sins decay just like the outward sins do. And sometimes those inward sins that are in the darkness of our own heart, that are in the darkness of our own minds and lives, sometimes they decay at an even greater rate than the outward sins. And so it's really easy for us who understand God's definition of righteousness to cast, to cast stones at those that are outward sinning. Let's look at sexual sin as a category. It's really easy to pick out the adulterer. It's really easy to pick out the person living in homosexuality. It's really easy to, to pick out the, the, uh, the young person that's going through a, a just series of partners one after another. It's really easy to pick out those sins. But when Jesus says that, that, that adultery is a sin of the heart, that, that, it, that the heart when the heart lusts, it is the sin of adultery, but inside, we have to recognize that yes, yes, we do need to call out those sins. Absolutely, we do. And when they're, when they're outward and when they're visible, we need to be able to call sin, sin. That's what the church is called to. But as we call sin, sin, we need to call sin, sin in our own hearts too. And we need to discern where, where we are lusting. We need to discern where, where we might have hidden sexual sins of the heart as well. And so just because we're not acting it out like they are, we walk in great humility as we approach that, um, that confrontation. And, and there's other categories of sins that you can do that with. Let's say somebody is operating financially in a dishonest way. And you know that, you, you see that. And you say, this person is stealing from their company or they're cheating on their taxes or they're, they're cheating their customers, whatever. And you say, that is wrong, that is sinful. Don't forget to realize that, that the greed sin exists in your own heart too. And therefore, you have to walk all that much more carefully in addressing the sin of others. Or you may not be in the same category of sin as that person, but you may be decaying in, in hate or, or anger, or jealousy towards somebody. And therefore, that log in your own eye keeps you from fully addressing the speck in somebody else's eye. We as Christians should be the most humble of all people. None of us should be surprised when somebody comes to us and says, hey, did you know you're a sinner? Yeah, I know that. You have no idea. You haven't looked in my own heart the way I have. You haven't seen the sins that come up in my head the way I have. I know better than anybody else exactly how sinful I am. But even I, as I grow in Christ, come to recognize this is what sanctification is all about. Uh, sanctification, as you grow in righteousness and knowledge of Christ, you recognize sins that you didn't think you were committing. You actually recognize over time in your maturity that you are more sinful than you thought you were. And maybe you're experiencing some victory over some of the outward sins, but but you recognize, ooh, some of that anger, some of that greed, some of that jealousy that were just sort of those safe sins, uh, those, are, those are really displeasing to God too. And those are, those are worth the punishment of hell too. And so therefore, I need to be continually walking in humility in my relationship with Christ and my relationship with others. But the fourth thing, well, let me say this, and then we'll go to the fourth thing. Uh, it, it is disobedient. It is disobedient to see a brother and sister in sin and do nothing. It doesn't mean everybody has to do everything to, to jump on a person all the time. But, but Galatians 6 says, restore in love and gentleness. So, so we need to do something. But it's also hypocritical to see a brother and sister in sin 
and not remember your own sinfulness along the way. Not attend to your own sins first. The fourth thing that righteous justice remembers is the heart. What does a good tree bear? Good fruit. What does a bad tree bear? Bad fruit. You know, I spoke about James chapter 3 with the youth last week, and in James 3, the illustration is about an apple tree and a pear tree. It's about a different type of tree producing different type of fruit. It's about a saltwater pond and a freshwater pond. You can't be both. You are what you are. And here, and so in James 3, uh, James is talking about how hard it is to tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. It's a deadly poison. It sets ablaze a great fire. It is unable to be tamed. Any animal can be tamed, but the tongue cannot be tamed. That's what James says. And what we see here in Luke 6 is Jesus saying, the reason the tongue is so hard to tame is that it's just the overflow of the heart. That really, taming the tongue is about taming the heart. And that's why it's so hard. Because we know that our, that our hearts are deceitful. We know that our hearts are desperately wicked without the cross of Christ to come in and, and, and to regenerate us, to make us new. And so, we should be recognizing the fact that our hearts will lead us astray. If we're not coming back to, again, this truth, Christians can't trust our own judgment and sometimes we can't even trust our own eyesight. We have to filter it through the truth of the word of God and the presence of the spirit of God. That, that's what Jesus is calling us to. Be led by the spirit. One final paragraph and one final word. Uh, Luke six forty six through 49. Uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the steam broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the steam broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Do you want to build a house on a foundation or a house without a foundation? How's that story going to end for you? And the one simple word of kingdom obedience is yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I'm going to do what you ask of me. Yes, Lord, I'm going to love with this radical kingdom love you have called me to. Yes, Lord, I'm going to judge others in humility, recognizing my own sin all along the way. Yes, Lord, I'm, I'm going to depend upon your word in all things. Yes, Lord, I'm going to depend on the leading of your spirit. Yes, Lord, I'm going to confess my sins to my brothers and sisters so that I can move towards restoration and righteousness. Uh, yes, Lord, I'm going to be dependent upon the community of Christ to walk through the difficulties of this life. Yes, Lord, I'm going to be an ambassador for your light in a dark world. Yes, Lord, I'm going to walk in faithfulness even when the rest of the world seems against you. Yes, Lord, I'm going to stand for your truth. Yes, Lord, I'm going to stand for your definition of sin and righteousness. Yes, Lord, I'm going to live my life for you, not myself. That's what obedience is about. There's a lot of ways to obey Christ, right? Because there's a lot of commands of Christ, but it all boils down to one word, yes. Or is it, no, Lord, I'm running late for work. I'll read my Bible later. 
No, Lord, I don't have time to commit to prayer right now. No, Lord, I just want to grab my coffee. I don't want to engage in conversation about the gospel. Uh, No, Lord, I'm not going to serve this person that I see is clearly in need on the side of the street. No, Lord, I'm not going to reach out to my brother or sister that is hurting. No, Lord, I'm not going to uh, forgive this person that has hurt me. Yes or no? It's a simple decision of following Jesus. It's an incredibly radical call to say yes to somebody that is outside of you, to somebody that is higher than you, somebody that is eternal and above all things, transcendent upon all of physical creation. But that's where the the yoke is easy. And that's where the burden is light. When we say yes to the only one offering eternal rest. The only one offering unconditional love. The only one offering a sin that covers over every, or a a blood that covers over every possible sin we could commit. And so the question for you, if it's the first time, if it's the first time that you've been faced with this decision to follow Jesus, the question for you is, will you say yes to repenting of your sin and resting in the shed blood of Jesus right now? Say yes and receive life that is eternal. Say yes and receive security in the hope that is an anchor for your soul. But let's say you're following Jesus. Let's say you've, you've given your life to Christ. What do you do now? Uh, sometimes it means saying yes about 27 times a day. Sometimes it means saying yes in the midst of an argument with your spouse Sometimes it means saying yes in the midst of disrespect from one of your children. Sometimes it means saying yes when a, when a coworker really upsets you. Sometimes it's saying yes when you're cut off in traffic. Sometimes it's saying yes when you see that person on the side of the road. Sometimes it's saying yes when you go into Panera every day for a coffee and you really don't like talking to strangers. That's me, y'all. And sometimes it's just being available to be a kingdom ambassador in a way that allows the Spirit of God to work and move in power. So that's all I want from us today as a body. Let's just say yes. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need your blood, Jesus. Yes, I need your forgiveness. And yes, wherever you call me, that's where I'm going next. So I'm gonna invite the worship team up to lead us. And I want y'all to stand. I want y'all to stand, we'll sing together, and by, and, and by standing, by singing, we are saying yes, and we're saying it together. Yes, Lord, wherever you lead. Yes, Lord, whatever you have for me. Yes, Lord, whoever you're calling me to love, serve. Yes, I'm available. So stand and say yes together. song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever bring We live for you Jesus 
just the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath we could ever be, we live for you.
Father, we give ourselves to you this morning. We give our lives, we give our hearts, we give our minds. Father, may the hearts overflow, may our hearts overflow in loving obedience towards you. May our yes be yes and our no be no. Yes to you, Father, and no to the world. May the things of this world grow strangely dim as we seek your kingdom and your righteousness. And so, Father, as we go today, go with us. Spirit, empower us. Use us. We want to see you change the world. And, Father, we make ourselves available to be your instruments. Use us, Father, for the salvation of many, for the restoration of many. Use us to shine light in the darkest places. Use us to be ambassadors of your kingdom. We say yes this morning to you, Father. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. And now the Lord's blessing over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Now go in peace.